Welcome to the Making After School Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Making After School Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, the division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. According to Dr. Deborah Appleman, professor at Carleton College and author of the recently published book, literature and the new cultural wars, the significance of literature is created due to how the subject matter reflects the human experience as well as the social cultural context the author replicates at the time of their writing. However, in today's current state of scrutiny and politics, those who write and teach secondary literature face numerous challenges. To discuss this difficulty is my guest, Dr. Deborah Appleman, Dr. Appleman previously taught high school English for nine years before receiving her doctorate from the University of Minnesota. She was also a visiting professor at Syracuse University and at the University of California, Berkeley. Currently, Professor Appleman is the Hollis L. Caswell Professor of Educational Studies and Director of the Summer Writing Program at Carleton College. Her recent research has focused on teaching college-level language and literature courses at the Minnesota Correctional Facility, Stillwater, for inmates who are interested in pursuing post-secondary education. She is the author or co-author of more than a dozen books on literacy instruction. Deborah, thank you so much for being my guest on the Making F School Cool podcast. From what I've heard from visiting your website, reading your blogs, and reading one of your current books, Literature and the New Cultural Wars, my first question is, what initially inspired you to get in the field of education? Well, thank you, Michael, for that question, and thank you, too, for having me. Um, like many people, high school was hard for me. I actually teach a class at Carleton called Teenage Wasteland to think about the ways in which um, how we structure high schools is or isn't helpful developmentally and otherwise to adolescents. And my opinion is that it could be much better. When I was in high school, I struggled socially, not necessarily academically. But the people who really saved me were my teachers, especially my English teachers. And I felt that they were functioning as catchers in the rye. I felt that they were adults with their arms outstretched um, so that they would be able to sort of watch out for me in some ways and would help guide and shepherd me during this turbulent time that we call adolescence. And I remember at the time in 11th grade, after a teacher was particularly helpful to me, saying to myself, and I know this sounds really corny, but I said, what she just did for me, I want to grow up and be able to do for a kid someday. And so it was initially being able to be that mentor, that guide, that helping person who would work with kids in the overall field of literature and reading that got me started in the first place. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think I had a, I had a pretty good high school experience. Uh, there were some classes like literature, actually, literature, English, language arts. I don't say I struggled with it, but I didn't connect with it until I got into college. And then when I got in college and I had more options, then I could read certain books from certain authors that we didn't read while I was in secondary. But uh, I do want to ask you, from my understanding, your area of expertise is literature. Why do you believe this is such an important subject matter for students to study? 
You know, a lot of people in our field talk about the fact that literature can function both as a window and as a mirror. So it functions as a window in the sense that you can be able to understand and empathize with other kinds of people, other cultures, other kinds of experiences that you yourself hasn't, haven't experienced. And I think that's kind of really the fate of our country is dependent on people being able to empathize with and respect people who are different from them. And one way of being able to do that is to read a book and to sort of live and die with whatever happens to the protagonist, even and especially if they're different from us. So that's one aspect, that's the window aspect. The mirror aspect is that it can also help us reflect on ourselves so that we can read people going through things that are similar to what we're going through, whether it's personal losses or struggles. And when you see somebody else going through it, then you say to yourself, well, what does this teach me about myself and my own experience? So I feel like literature is a particularly great way of being able to look outside at the experience of other people and inside at our own experiences. And that's why I believe in it so much. And I must say that once I did get freedom of choice of uh, being able to pick out stories and books and, all, and those types of things, I became an avid reader. Uh, I remember as a child, I would spend a lot of time in the library, but then once I got into, say, high school, you know, social events, other things kind of <laughs> took up a little bit of time. And then once I got into college, I would, I would spend a lot of time in the library. And one of the things that I think I noticed that is so powerful about reading a book, if that story is uh, turned into a movie, there's no comparison. The book to me is always so much better and stronger and vivid than the movie. And so, and I think a lot of that is our mental uh, perspective, how we, you know, we actually take what's in the story and bring it to life. Whereas whenever we see the movie, sometimes it doesn't match that picture that we had already created. At least that has been some of um, my previous experiences. In your own opinion, during your educational career, which I understand you started off in high school and now you're, you're teaching post-secondary, uh, has it become more complicated to teach literature as well as other fields of study dealing with historical time periods? And if so, why do you think this is happening? Yes, I definitely think it's gotten way more complicated for a couple of different reasons. Some of the reasons are good reasons and some of the reasons are terrible reasons. So one of the good reasons is something that you and I were talking about a little bit earlier, which is our acknowledgement of the complexity of mental health of adolescents and of young people. So like doctors, we have our own sort of Hippocratic oath, first do no harm, right? And so we are becoming increasingly aware that there are certain kinds of things that we read that, you know, might triggering for young people who are going through something particular. For example, when I was a high school teacher, we had a group of students who um, were killed in a car accident. That's not an unusual thing to have happen. But on my syllabus for my modern poetry class, the next Monday was a poem by Carl Shapiro called Auto Wreck. And I knew that my, my students and I 
were, I mean, I get the chills just sort of like remembering that even though it was like 40 years ago, I knew that we were not going to be able to read that poem at that time because the experience was too fresh. Now, I had public knowledge that that had happened, but you don't always have public knowledge of what your students are going through. Maybe they've experienced a death. Maybe they've broken up with somebody. Maybe they're dealing with, you know, their parents breaking up or, you know, issues of food insecurity and other kinds of things. And so we are more aware that our children are not blank slates, that they're living, breathing, really complicated people. And what we do in our classroom is going to bring up certain emotions. Now, I land on the side that bringing up emotions in the classroom can be a good thing if you guide it in a particular way. Um, but that's one of the, what I would call a good reason why it's more complicated. We find ourselves in the middle of a kind of culture war. So things about history, you know, there are people who say, you know, we don't, we don't want to teach about slavery. Well, we have to teach about slavery. Yeah, it's horrible to read about slavery, but not as horrible as the fact that slavery happened in this country. And if we don't read about it, and if we don't study it, then we are, we are subject to making similar inhumane, unjust mistakes. And yet all of this talk about critical race theory, and nobody really exactly knows what it is, but they think that they're upset with it or you know other kinds of things that have to do with lgbtq issues um other kinds of things like that education has become such a hot button and teaching is hard enough so you're trying to not alienate parents you're trying to teach kids what you feel that they should learn but right now we're just kind of in the middle of all of this you know ferment about what's appropriate and what's not and one of the things that prompted me to write the, write the book is that I've been used to dealing with people who label themselves as more conservative, who don't want kids to read things that are salacious or things that you know promote a certain point of view. But what's shocked me lately is to have some of that censoring come from people who consider themselves to be liberal you know who say you can't teach this because the kids are going to be upset by it you can't teach this because of the portrayal of people of color or women or other marginalized groups is problematic and what i say is yes that was problematic and what we need to do is to talk together by reading it about how we have or haven't grown as a society since then and what are some lessons that we can learn from it too but I would say that it's more complicated now than it's ever been before. You're so right um, to become a little bit more aware of the diversity of something, at least the diversity of a truth. And, you know, then you realize that it is sort of a uh, multi-perspective, three to, three to four dimensional. So it's not just this plain black and white, uh, something that's been written in a particular text. And that brings me to my next question. How important is representation and diversity needed in literary work, either in the form of people of color as authors or main characters in stories? That's such a great question, Michael. And I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier that when you were when you were in high school, you know, literature was not like your favorite subject. 
And yet here you are, an avid reader and an educational advocate. My guess is that as you were reading those classics, you could never see yourself or your experiences represented in the book. And so you were sort of asked to always, you know, be othered in a particular kind of way. And even though I said earlier that literature should be a window onto other people's experiences, it should also be a mirror onto our own experiences. And if you find that you're always left out of the conversation or the representation, why should you care about it? And similarly, if the person in front of the room, if the teacher in the room is not a person who represents anything about your own background or experience, why should you believe that they understand you or where you're coming from? And you know that saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? And so too many of our classrooms are fronted by you know, middle-class white women to just like not make too fine a point on it. And then we sort of like wonder why some students are left behind. So the diversity of the teaching force and the diversity of the representation of what we are reading is really important. And I'm also glad that you asked this question because I think that one way that people might misread my argument is to say that I'm trying to cling to the classics and hang on to them no matter what. Like no matter what, we have to read Huck Finn or To Kill a Mockingbird or Shakespeare or whatever. And I'm not saying that. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But it's kind of like goes back to your question about naming. It's like, we need to learn from the past. But you can't learn from the past if you erase the past. And so we have to figure out a way of confronting it. We also have to bring in some contemporary authors. We have to bring in diverse authors, authors of color, authors from marginalized groups. And then we have to have people who belong to that same cultural representation in front of the classroom. Because I will always, no matter how much I try to understand, be a tourist in somebody else's cultural background. I haven't lived it, I don't understand it, and the students deserve to have someone in front of them that does. That's not saying that I don't think that white teachers can't be effective teachers of color. They can and they have to be. But I think that we have to change the diversity of our work, of our teaching force, in order to reflect the diversity of our student population. Yeah, that's, that's so true because I think uh, coaches, I only had two educators that were black and uh, one taught algebra. And uh, I want to say the other was, it was music. Um, and so from K through 12, I've only had two non-athletic coaches that were in the same group as, as, as myself. Uh, when I went into college, it became a little bit more diverse. And then when uh, I got the opportunity to, again, explore the different topics that I enjoyed reading, I remember reading The House on Mango Street by, I think, I can't remember my first name, my last name is Cisneros. 
And she talked about her childhood, uh, doing things with her grandmother. And the book centered around a predominantly Hispanic community. But I related to it so much because her childhood was very similar to when I would go visit my grandmother. Some of the language, some of the traditions were a little bit different, but the relationships, the food, um, that I could actually kind of relate to. So kind of what you were saying, yeah, a lot of those classics, I did not see myself or anyone similar to myself. So I, it was difficult for me to interpret the stories. But then when I started reading things that I could relate to or understood or shared experiences, then I, I really devolve into uh, some of the, the content. Um, we're going to shift gears slightly, even though we have been talking about this. How do you think the current climate of divisive opinions shape the way educators teach now? I just wrote something about this is that in, you know, at the beginning of the school year, people are looking and, you know, let's say you love to teach Sherman Alexi because you know that it's one book you know, those kids love the Lone Ranger and Tonto fist fight in heaven. But then you're like, well, wait a minute. Uh, Sherman Alexi has been canceled. So I'm not supposed to teach him because, you know, I'm a liberal feminist teacher. And, you know, maybe he has committed all of these horrible things. But like, I've got 150 kids and I want to give them the best, most engaging literature. And I think that that's a choice that I would make. Now, all of a sudden, your choices are super complicated by it. So it's one additional thing to weigh, one additional thing to think about. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in my book is to give teachers permission to sort of teach what your heart says is right. That despite whatever the political, the, the prevailing political sentimentality is, that you have to do what's right for you and your students. So it is not politically correct to say right now that I'm going to continue to teach Sherman Alexi. And people that I know who basically like and respect me think that it's horrible that I'm saying that. What kind of feminist are you? Let's, you know, look at what he's done. And I'm kind of like, all I know is what it's like to teach him in an urban classroom with lots of kids, including native kids who have never read something by a native author before. And he is incredible. And just because the group thinks says that he's not appropriate because we've deemed his behavior immoral, um, I need to do a balancing act and think about what's best in my own classroom for my own students. So that's among the ways. And, you know, these te teachers are in these culture wars. Like, um, I taught a senior seminar in the spring and I opened it up. It was called Madness and Mayhem about what's going on in education. I spent like the first 20 minutes just showing opening segments from school board meetings, including school board meetings in your state, right? Public school board meetings where people are yelling and screaming at each other about school choice, about, you know, LGBTQ issues, about critical race theory, about what should and shouldn't get taught. And, you know, teachers are caught in the fray. So here are the parents and here are the kids and the teachers are in the middle, right? And they're trying to decide what's best. So those are the ways in which I think it's gotten super complicated. You know, it's interesting because, uh, again, I've had a lot of discussions with some of my friends, family members and colleagues in regard to, you know, do you separate the art from the artist? 
And if there's something you really like and it connected with you, but then you find out that the person who created it uh, may have done something that's against your morals, then you have this, I guess, internal <laughs> conflict. So then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, lack of a better word, I'm going to counsel it or counsel them until you either see, hear, or read some of their work again and you realize, hey, I really, really like this. And I'm sure educators are really struggling with that. Uh, and so that brings me to my next question. How can limiting literary work that's available to students hamper the students' educational, social, and emotional development? So do you remember a little while ago when you were talking about when you got to read what you wanted to read, you know, um, it's, uh, worlds opened up for you and also you preferred the book to the movie because when you read the book, you were doing all of this imaginative work. You were imagining things, you were learning about things in ways that were like really um, helpful to you. So I think that one of the things that happens is that we, we limit students' ability to imagine other worlds when we keep them from them. And we also limit their ability to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong and, instead of making the decision for them. So for example, in a class, a classroom in Minneapolis, when we were going to thinking about reading Sherman Alexi, we didn't hide the controversy from them. We said, look, you know, here's some stuff that we can read, but it's also important for you to know that this author is really under fire. And here's why. And here's a couple of articles. And so let's talk about whether you think we should teach him. Should, you, should we read him? Would it make you uncomfortable? Let's kind of have the conversation. Or here's a book that was written in the you know 19th century that has the N-word in it. And that's an offensive, heart-hurting word. Um, and it, we want to contextualize it. I mean, it's even true when someone like James Baldwin uses the N-word because he wants your heart to hurt. He wants you to feel the dagger. He wants you to see it. And so to sort of say, this is problematic. Here's why we might read it. Here's why we might not read it. Here's why we will or won't even say anything out loud. But I want to trust kids to be in the conversation instead of keeping it from them and saying, okay, I've decided that this is too sensitive for you, or I've decided this is too violent for you, or I've decided this is too sexual for you or too problematic for you. I think that within reason, we should let them decide. And I'm not saying that I think all kids, I'm not a libertarian who thinks all kids should be able to read everything and that we should, you know, perpetuate, you know, sexual violence and other kind of violence in our classrooms. I think you probably noticed from my website that I also teach in a prison. I teach in a high security prison for men who have been convicted of doing, you know, pretty awful crimes. I don't want to encourage that kind of violent behavior by what they read, but I also want to encourage their moral reasoning and their moral thinking by respecting them enough to give them an opportunity to make judgments for themselves in the safety of a classroom. Uh, in the book I'm currently reading, Literature and the New Cultural Wars, you write about the impact various opinions regarding cancel culture, being so-called woke, acknowledging trigger warnings, etc. 
What was your inspiration for writing this book and how could you suggest educators address these influences? Well, uh, to be honest, my first one was getting some pushback about my, um, my insistence that I still thought Sherman Alexie should be taught in the high school. And, you know, there were a lot of people that I worked with and respected who thought that, you know, I, I had lost my mind. <laughs> there was an incident in my college that I recounted the beginning of the book where a bunch of students came up to a professor and said, we noticed that Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye is on your um, syllabus. We are going to tell you that we were going to refuse to read it because if there's incest in the book and that's triggering. And the thing about it is none of those young people were incest victims themselves. They were sort of as a proxy arguing. They didn't want to um, have it in there. And the thing about it that bothered me was number one, they didn't trust that the teacher would find a way of navigating a safe passage. That's like what we get paid the big bucks or not for, right? I mean, our job is to figure out how we can move young people in a thoughtful and meaningful way to, to face hard stuff and to not be hurt, right? And so, you know, the, it was a lack of trust that sort of preempted the teacher's ability and even responsibility to craft her classroom. The other thing is, as the books we read become more diverse, the childhoods and backgrounds and issues that we read about are going to be more diverse too. And they're not going to be pretty. They're not going to be all Dick and Jane. They're not going to be everything is wonderful. So if we really want to understand the diversity of human experience, that includes things that are hard, that includes things that are ugly. And if you start censoring people, you know, like Toni Morrison um, or Colson Whitehead or other people, then you're going to also be censoring that diverse set of authors that we were talking about in the first place. That's not to say that all authors of color deal with these problematic issues, but if people are reflecting on a world that they've seen that they want other people to know about, there's going to be some stuff in there that, um, you know, people are a little uncomfortable with in our classrooms. And I think that's what is so engaging at times with literature is that uncomfortableness and it may also you know do some, have you do some self-analyzing on why is this so difficult why is this so um hard for me and if it's a historical time period and if that's the way people spoke that was the common acceptable language even though it may be degrading to certain people um that is was accurate that was historically accurate and so to make it to where it's set at a time that's what our contemporary values are, uh, to me, that's not authentic. And that to me can be one of the um, difficult or difficulties for people who are teaching literature, history, social studies, and so on. Um, when people don't take in consideration, these are professionals, they know how to handle this. And it, one of the best things about education is, is actually the discussion that it elicits. If people have a question, I wanna get more information regarding your work. What is the best way to contact you? 
Um, so the best way of contacting me is to email me at um, d-a-p-p-l-e-m-a at c-a-r-l-e-t-o-n dot e-d-u dapplema at carlton dot e-d-u um, I would be, you know, happy to answer any questions that people have or do any professional development <laughs> with people who are struggling with these things to come. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book, Michael, is that at the end of every chapter, I tried to say, well, here's how you could handle this instead of just saying, don't do this or don't do that or do this or do that. From my experience as a classroom teacher to say, okay, well, if you have a problematic text, you can pair it with other texts. You can use those student choices. You can have an anchor text, but you can give people choices about that. You can teach the controversy and trust kids enough to let them decide. So I do have a lot of strategies and a lot of approaches that people can use. So if you, um, email me um that would be great uh, i'd love to hear from you um etc and don't forget your website like <laughs> i was just reading some of your blogs com. <laughs> i have a website um i'm also on twitter i'm not on facebook partly because of the complexity of teaching at a high security prison and having to limit my you know my public facing uh accessibility in some ways departments of correction everywhere are kind of you i'm under surveillance let's put it that way um so i have to really be careful about that public facing part but the deborahappelman.com is a website where you'll find my blog you'll find other books that i've written other things that i'm thinking about and doing and i'd love to hear from you before we close do you have any final comments um, well, first of all, I just want to thank you, Michael, for, you know, inviting me and considering that this is, um, you know, important for your listeners. I really appreciate that. I think that, you know, it, what's important is not whether we agree or disagree with, with each other, but we have the conversation. I'm sure that's, you know, one of the main objectives of your podcast and the work that you do. So being able to talk with each other, and that kind of goes back to one of the questions that you asked me about what makes it so difficult right now. Right now, our country is so divided, it's so bifurcated, that the different sides don't respect each other enough to try to figure out why we believe what we believe. And in order for us to keep from being torn apart, we're gonna to have to learn how to talk, not just with people who agree with us, but with people who with us. And so I know that there'll be a lot of disagreement about what I wrote, but I'm kind of like, bring it on. <laughs> well, I really applaud you for your work. I think that, uh, like you said, at the end of each chapter, you do talk about, you know, discussion topics, things that educators, or even in my opinion, uh, parents, uh, anybody who's, who's interacting with youth, uh, how they can discuss these particular things. Uh, so I, I definitely want to commend you for, for doing that. It does make some of these difficult discussions a lot easier. Uh, I'm one of those, similar to you, I actually like divergent views. Uh, I think that there is different truths and we should be acceptance on, you know, what you actually tr um, 
what your truth is, but also respect what other people's truths are. Um, and so I, I think it's really, really important. And I've, I've definitely been recommending your book, uh, been talking about different parts of the book and even some of the things we've written on your blog and some of the other stuff. So again, I, I applaud you for the work you've done. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you, Michael. And um, thank you so much. Same here. Cool. As always, I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this week's episode, where our topic focused on how the current climate of divisive opinions shaped the way educators must teach today. Please join us for future episodes as we continue to explore issues relevant to the out-of-school time field. <laughs>